I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. There is a lot of discussion today about issues related to culture and ethnicity and race and the relationship between Christianity and the society around us, but even many Christians tend to use those terms without carefully defining exactly what they mean. And so in this episode today, I would like to look carefully, specifically at the concept of culture. What is culture? What is ethnicity? What are the relationships between the two? And what implications should we draw for more careful definitions of these terms? But first, let me remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you would go over to Apple Podcasts and give the podcast a five-star rating and share this episode or the podcast in general on social media. Likely the most influential early evangelical definition of culture comes from Leslie Newbigin, who defined it this way, Culture is the sum total of ways of living built up by a human community and transmitted from one generation to another. Now, it's important to recognize that this definition, which has impacted other definitions after it, draws its understanding of culture not directly from Scripture, but rather assumes the validity of the contemporary idea of culture on its own merit. This in itself is not necessarily problematic, but it's important to remember that the modern definition of culture developed out of relatively recent ideas about anthropology. Prior to the Enlightenment, people groups were differentiated primarily by their religion, but later the way to account for differences was culture. Neither New Testament authors nor pre-Enlightenment Christian authors discuss culture as such. But the fact that the contemporary idea of culture emerged from 20th century anthropology doesn't necessarily imply that it is an invalid or unbiblical idea. Many traditional ideas take on contemporary articulations. The important question for biblical evaluation of the common evangelical understanding of culture is to evaluate how their approach to this subject fits within the biblical framework. And that's what I would like to discuss next. Since cultural anthropology formulated the common understanding of culture, and since the term culture is not a biblical one per se, there's little reason to debate the definition itself. What's important for a Christian concerned with culture is to determine, taking for granted this anthropological definition of culture, what ideas in scripture should inform our understanding of culture. And to answer that question, there are at least three possible categories of New Testament ideas that could parallel the more contemporary idea of culture. The first group of terms in the New Testament that could possibly parallel the modern understanding of culture are terms associated with ethnicity. These ideas are probably the most commonly cited by evangelical authors who are talking about culture. For example, Mark Driscoll in his writings equates race, nation, and culture, alluding to Revelation 7-9 when he insists that God promised that people from every race, culture, language, and nation will be present to worship him as their culture follows him into heaven. The term representative of this group that Christian anthropologists mostly cite is the Greek word ethnos. For example, in commenting on Matthew 28, 16-20, Christian cultural anthropologists Paris and Howell explain that the word translated nations in that text, which is ethnos, quote, refers to the culture of a people. 
They directly equate ethnos with culture, and they insist that cultural anthropology helps to fulfill the Great Commission by preparing Christians to go to all ethne and speak and live effectively. Greek lexicons define the term ethnos this way, a multitude, whether of men or of beasts, associated or living together, a multitude of individuals of the same nature or genus, a race, nation, or people group. Notice that the word does not refer to culture itself, but rather to a people group, a tribe, a nation. Evangelical authors assume that the New Testament uses ethnos as parallel to culture, yet this correspondence falls outside the common usage of the term. Now, an ethnos may be united by a shared culture, but it is not the same as culture. The term ethnos in the New Testament refers to a group of people, not to the culture around which that group unites. And furthermore, use of the term in the New Testament is normally intended to actually blur cultural differences rather than to highlight them. In Matthew 28:19, for example, Jesus commands his followers to teach all nations. That's the plural of the word ethnos. D.A. Carson suggests that Matthew, quote, uses ethne in its basic sense of tribes, nations, or peoples, and means all people without distinction or all nations without distinction. The point of the command in Matthew 28 is not necessarily to emphasize the cross-cultural reality of evangelizing each distinct cultural group. Rather, according to Carson again, the aim of Jesus' disciples is to make disciples of all men everywhere without distinction. The other passage often cited by evangelical authors is Revelation 5.9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nations. There's that word, ethnos. So John's using four nearly synonymous terms related to ethnicity. But once again, John is using these terms not to emphasize cultural distinctions between various people groups, but rather to signify that all people without national or cultural distinctions will be in heaven one day. In the church, all are united into one newly distinct body. So these examples of the use of terms related to ethnicity by New Testament authors indicate that the terms signify distinct groups of people that unify around common heritage, geographical location, language, and customs. But culture, as defined by contemporary anthropologists, may be one element around which an ethnos unifies, but an ethnos is not culture itself. Well, there's a second possibility in the New Testament, the second category of New Testament terms that may indicate a parallel with contemporary idea of culture include words related to what we might call the world order. These are terms like aeon, which is often translated age or world, and cosmos, which is also translated world. These terms can refer to the physical earth, to people in general, or a period of time, but at least three passages in the New Testament use these terms in ways that might be construed as parallel to the anthropological idea of culture, especially by those who consider culture to be inherently evil. 
The first is John 17, 14 through 16, which says, I have given them your word, and the world, cosmos, has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Here, cosmos is being used to identify an identifiable world system. In this context, John asserts several conclusions about the world. Christ is not of it, believers are not of it, but they are in it, and the evil one is in some way related to it. While that might seem to have a connection with the contemporary idea of culture, this system includes values and orientation that create culture, but does not appear to identify culture itself as defined by anthropologists. A related passage is 1 John 2, 15-17. Here again, cosmos is treated decidedly negatively. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here again, the world system does not appear to be the same thing as what anthropologists called culture. Not all of what mankind produces is godless, empty, or at enmity with God. The final passage is Romans 12.2. This time the term in question is aeon, and once again the term is treated negatively. Do not be conformed to this world there's that term aeon, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The term appears to be used here nearly synonymously with how John uses cosmos in John 14 and 1 John 2. It describes a world system to which believers are not to be conformed. But once again, the term appears to signify an ordered system of values alienated from God rather than signifying culture itself. And so, again, assuming an anthropological definition of culture as an entire way of life of a people, the idea of world does not directly apply in these cases since world is something entirely hostile to God in every case, while certainly not everything a people does is necessarily evil. Well, there's a third category of New Testament ideas that could parallel the contemporary concept of culture, and these are terms related to behavior, terms translated behavior, conduct, or way of life. Among these, New Testament authors most often use the word anastrophe in this manner. Lexicons define this word as life, as made up of actions, mode of life, conduct, and deportment. The Apostle Paul used this word to describe his behavior in his previous existence in Galatians 1.13 when he said, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Notice that Paul understood his way of life as flowing directly and necessarily from his religious convictions and values. Because of this perspective, Paul insisted that one's conduct must change with his conversion. For example, in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, 
because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, notice this, which belongs to your former manner of life. There's that word anastrophe and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So here Paul distinguishes between the behavior of unbelievers and the behavior of Christ followers. He notes that the values of the former lead to sinful behavior. He describes this once again as their former manner of life, using the term anastrophe. In contrast, the new values of Christians produce a new way of life. Paul communicates a similar sentiment to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 when he admonishes, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, that's the word anastrophe, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul clearly uses this word to describe a particular way of life, whether good or evil, that flows from religious beliefs and values. The most prolific use of this idea occurs in Peter's writings. Forms of the term appear three times in 1 Peter 1, 13-19. Like Paul, Peter contrasts a former way of life with that of a new believer. Peter characterizes the former behavior as flowing from ignorance, leading to futile ways inherited from your forefathers. This new way is to be characterized by holiness and fear. In this passage, Peter uses the verb form of anastrophe to command his readers to live a certain way since they have been ransomed from the former life. Later in 1 Peter 2.12, Peter admonishes his readers, keep your conduct, there's that word anastrophe again, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds, that's the word ergon, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Notably, this command is in the context of Peter using terms related to ethnicity to call believers in Christ a chosen race, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. And so this, again, reveals a connection between terms related to ethnicity and those related to behavior. Genos, ethnos, laos identify groups of people who unite around common anastrophe, behavior. This common behavior stems from shared values and beliefs. Christians, according to Peter, are members of a new ethnicity who possess common values and beliefs that result in a new way of life. This pattern of conduct is distinct from their former behavior, the conduct of unbelievers. This metaphorical use of ethnos here is used in several passages, including 1 Peter 2.9, and indicates that the Christian community forms, in a sense, a new nation, a new ethnicity, different from their former ethnicities. So what this study reveals is that the New Testament ideas most closely resembling both cultural anthropologists and contemporary evangelical authors' definitions of culture are those ideas and words in the New Testament related to behavior, way of life. 
While both the terms related to ethnicity and those terms related to the world have relationships to the contemporary notion of culture, they do not identify culture itself. Ethnic groups unite around common culture, and the sinful world system affects unbelieving culture, but these ideas are not the same as culture. Rather, Behavior-related terms and ideas like anastrophe and ergon in the New Testament, which describe complete ways of life, conduct, and behavior, most closely identify the sum total ways of living built up by a human community and transmitted from one generation to another, to use Newbigin's definition. If there is any concept of the anthropological evangelical idea of culture in the New Testament, it is the idea of way of life. A people's culture is their behavior and their conduct. And so, if the idea of culture in the New Testament is essentially behavior, then the biblical approach to culture becomes more apparent. First, unholy culture exists. The Bible is clear that mankind left to itself is utterly corrupt. Even though God created all things good and even manifests himself generally in that creation, mankind continually rejects God and is therefore under God's condemnation. Mankind not only refuses God's revelation, it cannot accept God on its own. Sinful culture exists because culture, understood as behavior, is a reflection of values. The Apostle Paul speaks of his former sinful culture when he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. His was a culture of hatred and violence toward true people of God. Furthermore, Peter speaks of the sensual conduct of the wicked, 2 Peter 2.7, and those who live in error, 2 Peter 2.18. Particular behaviors are sinful when they are expressions of sinful values. But second, Christians are redeemed from unholy culture. Paul states that even believers once lived, there's that word anastrophe, in the passions of their flesh, but through Christ, God has raised believers out of such unholy behavior in Ephesians 2. This is why Paul commands Christians later in Ephesians 4.22 to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. Believers are to reject actively the sinful behavior that flows from sinful values expressly because they are ransomed from the feudal ways of life, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.18. Third, holy values ought to affect every aspect of a Christian's behavior, a Christian's culture. The Bible is clear. The behavior of Christians is to be holy. James states of a Christian, by his good conduct, there's that word anastrophe again, let him show his works. Likewise, Peter commands Christians to be holy in all their conduct, and Paul commands Timothy to set an example in conduct. A Christian is a new creation with new values, and those values will affect every aspect of his culture. For example, after commanding believers to put off the old self which belongs to their former way of life, Paul details several different areas in which the new self will manifest itself, including relationships with neighbors, work ethic, communication. The outcome of new values is new culture in every aspect of life. 
And so it is important, as we Christians talk about the relationship between culture and ethnicity, that we not equate the two things. As I have suggested, the idea most likely associated with culture today is ethnicity. Yet as this study has demonstrated, ethnicity and culture are not equal. Ethnicity describes a group of people with shared ancestral and genetic roots, while culture describes behavior. Such behavior may be passed down through the traditions of a given ethnicity, but there is nothing inherently ethnic about any cultural expression. Christians in the 21st century will not be able to escape wrestling through matters of culture and contextualization as we seek to accomplish the mission God has for us. Yet rather than adopting the understanding of culture developed by secular anthropologists, Christians should be willing to reorient our viewpoint to fit within the biblical categories of behavior and conduct, applying all that the scripture has to offer about those categories to cultural matters. Only then will we be equipped to appropriate a true biblical perspective on culture and contextualization for world evangelism, worship, and the entirety of church ministry. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services, and if you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.